Hi, friends, and welcome to Robcast 96. Uh, is it 96? That is incredible. Um, this is part five of a series called Learning to Lament. Uh, I'm essentially reflecting on these poems that are called Lamentations. They're in the middle of the Bible. They're very easy to miss if you're just skimming through, um, but they're about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And there's these three characters, a narrator, a woman who is essentially the personification of the city. She um, lies deserted. She was once full of people. She's a widow. She's an orphan. She's a mother. Uh, The city is seen as a she, and the narrator just tells you all the horrible things that have happened to the she. Um, There's a third character, a man who shows up in poem three, but, you know, we haven't even gotten to him yet. Um, But there's this one line uh, about skirts. And then there's a later line about a virgin and the relationship between the two, because they happen in different chapters, it's easy to miss what the poet is doing here. This poet, so brilliant. And there's a couple of illusions um, that, illusions, not illusions, that uh, references to the earlier history of this tribe that sort of unlock all sorts of of deeper meanings. So uh, the narrator is going on about how how bad it's gotten and is essentially saying Jerusalem, uh, he says, verse 8, has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. The poet's essentially saying uh, Jerusalem brought this destruction on herself. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Now, in the line after the nakedness, it says this, her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was no one to comfort her. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Now, uh, the skirts here is a euphemism for sex, um, And actually, more importantly, for infidelity, filthiness clinging to skirts. Um, The word there for filthiness is uh, the Hebrew word refers to unclean, like ritually, religiously unclean. So the, the, the narrator is saying, oh, this is her fault. She, uh, she essentially whored herself out and in the process made herself unclean, which was a very, very important thing to this tribe. Um, it's a religious word, and it has a long history. Essentially, the, the narrator says she was an adulterer, and she had this coming, and she's getting what she deserved. Um, now, that can sound really harsh, obviously. Uh, so what I want to do is take you into a whole world of context here and show you what the narrator is referring to and... Then the narrator does something later in response to this line that, uh, well, you'll see in a second. So uh, the Bible is a story of a tribe. Uh, It's a story of this Jewish tribe, also called the Israelites, and their relationship with their God. So I want to talk about calling, and then want to talk about covenant, and then eventually we'll come back to the skirts part, and then eventually we'll get to the virgins part. Sound good? Okay. Uh, First, calling. At the, tribe of, at the heart of this tribe's understanding of themselves was that they were to be a new kind of tribe in the world because tribes at that time existed to defeat other tribes to protect and preserve their tribe, every tribe for themselves. 
But with Abraham, sort of the founder of this Jewish family, this Jewish tribe, this Jewish nation, Abraham was told all the world's going to be blessed through you. Essentially, the world has become a violent, dangerous place, and there needs to be a new kind of humanity who go the other direction, away from violence and into generosity, away from destruction and war, and into compassion and kindness. Now, let's be honest, we aren't there yet. Would you agree? Um, But this idea was planted early on that through Abraham would come a tribe that would bless the whole world. Essentially, the idea was there's a higher end for human beings. There's a higher calling for humans than simply protecting and preserving their tribe and crushing whoever they need to to get ahead. Are you with me? Do you see how this idea, this is a new idea in human history in many ways. So at the heart of this biblical story is this idea of a new kind of people who move in the world in a new kind of way, who bless other tribes instead of trying to destroy them, who care for people rather than trying to exploit them. And so at the heart of this Jewish tribe, again and again, like in the book of Leviticus, leave a corner of your field for the poor among you. It means when you harvest your field, leave a corner of your field unharvested unharvested, so that those who are hungry can come and get some food. Over and over again, there's this triad, care for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant among you. This is why the Exodus story is so central to the life of this tribe. The Exodus story is about this tribe in slavery being liberated. And then over and over again, their God keeps saying, I liberated you. Remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I heard your cry when you were suffering, when you were enslaved, when you were in bondage in Egypt. I heard your cry and I brought you out. So now you be a new kind of people in the world, the kind of people who don't cause more suffering, but who hear the cry of those who are suffering, who hear the cry of those who are being oppressed, and you move to help them. You use whatever strength and power and wealth and influence you have, not to build your empire even bigger, but to help those on the underside. Are you with me? So there's this calling on this tribe to be a new kind of tribe in the world. By the way, if you're thinking, yeah, well, what about all that violence? Great question. I would respond with this. New ideas take a, take a while to catch on, don't they? Like in your life, did you wake up one day fully enlightened and mature and fearless and kind and compassionate? Uh, no, you didn't. Neither did I. But you've been introduced to these ideas, right? So, so why aren't you living them perfectly? You know you should take good care of your body. Do you take absolute perfect care of your body? Exactly. Yeah. You see, it, evolution takes a while. And in the scriptures, what you have is a witness to the fact that evolution takes a while. Enlightenment takes a while. Uh, So we all witness to the fact that growth, evolution, take a while in our lives. And then people wonder why the Bible is so violent. What you have are these unbelievable new ideas about what it means to be human. But people also have all sorts of old ideas. Namely, uh, at that time 
tribes existed to crush other tribes. And when you destroyed another tribe, you did it in the name of your God. That's how people lived. So there are these new ideas that have taken root, and yet you can see how fragile it is. So the Bible is an excellent record of how it works. We get stuck in old patterns, and then ever so gradually, new ideas begin to take root, and maybe even new actions out of there. Now, obviously, we have a long, long, long way to go. Are you with me? So that's a very, very short bet on all that violence. But nevertheless, this story is about this tribe wrestling with their calling, identity, and mission in the world. And they fall viciously, violently short on a number of occasions, kind of like we all do. So that's calling. Now covenant. At the heart of this story among these people was this understanding that they were in what's called a covenant or a love relationship with their divine. Now remember, the gods were angry. Gods were angry, mean, cruel, and vindictive. God sent floods to destroy everything. So at the heart of this Jewish story you find here in the scriptures was the birth of new ideas about the divine, new ideas about the foundation of reality. Namely, that this God was interested in a relationship. By the way, this was a brand new idea in human history. So these were all brand new ideas. This is evolving consciousness. And at the heart of it, then these people began to understand their relationship as like a husband-wife relationship, God and Israel. And they actually saw the giving of the Ten Commandments as like a wedding ceremony. Um, a ketubah was, is the word for, a, for like an oath that two people make to live together. And the Ten Commandments were always understood as the reflection of a love relationship. Essentially, the Ten Commandments are, here's how we're going to live together. And obviously, the first one is you can't have other lovers or this isn't going to work. So whenever you hear somebody say something like, you know, that Old Testament God of wrath, uh, actually, the dominant images of the Hebrew scriptures are love. Um, now, obviously, there's tons of violence and wrath going on. Of course, that's how everybody thought about the gods. It shouldn't surprise us that that, that language would be all over and those kinds of actions would be all over the scriptures. That's how people thought in the ancient world. But within this you have this new idea of love, this new idea of a covenant relationship. Actually, the dominant image in the Hebrew scriptures is God is lover who pursues. And so to live in this covenant relationship of love would then be to extend love, grace, and compassion to all those who need it the most, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant among you. These come up again and again and again. Always hear, make sure you can hear the cry of the oppressed. Make sure that you leave a corner of your field for everybody who needs some food. Over and over again, the image is of a calling and a covenant. And uh, one of the images one of the prophets used was uh, that this tribe was to be a light to the rest of the world a light, a new way of being, which is, by the way, when Jesus talks about letting your light shine, he's talking to this tribe. 
and he's calling them back to their original destiny to be a new kind of people in the world, to invite all of humanity to be a new kind of people in the world, which is why actually one of the writers in the New Testament, Paul, who calls himself like a Jew of a Jew, he's like a Hebrew of a Hebrew, like I'm as, I'm as in as it gets with this tribe, he refers to a new humanity in his New Testament writings. It was always about a new way of being human. So you can see what happened early on, this tribe, their power and wealth corrupted them. Um, it starts King Solomon, who is uh, the son of King David. He becomes an arms dealer. He builds his temple and palace using slaves. We should probably should do a whole series of Robcasts just on this. Um, they get caught up in all the same things all the other tribes get caught up in. And from there, it all begins to fall apart, which is where the prophets come in. Some would argue the prophets uh, are the first voicings of social justice in human history. The prophets stand up and say, you are using your wealth to deal arms and to cause more violence and destruction in the world. You're forgetting the poor. You're selling out the poor. And if you do this, your empire is going to fall apart. And one of the images that came about with the prophets was that of infidelity. You, you are to live with your God in a particular kind of covenant relationship, and you've wandered away. You've become corrupt. You've become an adulterer. You aren't taking care of the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant among you. And you aren't being true to yourself. You're being unfaithful. So you can see how this language of infidelity, this language of the, the whore, the adulterer, the, the language of the, the one who wanders away from a love relationship and gives herself or himself to all these different people. You can see how this sort of language had a powerful thing because it was rooted in love. And so a lot of what happened is these prophets rose up and essentially put this love and betrayal language to describe what was happening. And you even have a, like Hosea, you have these um, prophets talking about how God will keep welcoming her back. Um, so you have this personification of this tribe as a woman who can be faithful or she can um, be unfaithful. She can be true to who she uh, has agreed to be or she can be untrue to herself. And many times the prophets would simply say, if she wanders away, there will be consequences. Um, if she doesn't, and remember, if you think about this at just at a military, economic, government, societal level, what they kept saying was, if she ignores and abuses and is indifferent to the suffering and the oppression within her midst, her whole empire will crumble. By the way, uh, isn't it astounding how relevant all of these, um, we're still talking about the same things. This system works for some people, but it doesn't work for others. And if we become indifferent when the system works for us, and so we become indifferent for how it doesn't work for others, we're this the same, same issues, same issues thousands of years later. So that's why in Lamentations you keep having the woman uh, owning up to how she brought this on herself because the prophets rise up. They say, you can't go down this path. If you go on this path, you're going to reap destruction. The Babylonians, somebody will come and destroy you if you don't take care of those in your midst who need it. Um, what's interesting is the prophets directly connected 
caring for the least of these in your those who are the most oppressed and forgotten and hungry and poor the prophets directly connected foreign conquest and the downfall of the empire with whether or not they cared for the widow the orphan and the immigrant among you and that interesting that they they had they connected being conquered militarily and economic depression with how well they cared for the oppressed in their midst, how well they were faithful and true to their destiny. So what you have here in Lamentations is the woman is opening up, she's owning up to the role that she had in all of this. Now, let's be really, really clear. Uh, sometimes when we suffer, it's not because of anything we did. Um, anybody who tells you you have cancer because God's trying to judge you or something, just get away from that person, block them on all forms of media, okay? Not helpful. Um, so let's be really, really clear here. Um, that person who betrayed you, um, there's a chance they're a mean, nasty person, and it has little to nothing, nothing to do with you somehow bringing this on yourself. So... Um, what we're talking about here is a situation where the poet is essentially saying she, she was warned, the city was warned, the city turned its back, she turned her back on her destiny, on her true calling, on her true self, we might say in modern language, and because of that, that's why she was destroyed. Uh, but in here, there's a lesson for us, uh, side note, one lesson is simply it's really important to own up to whatever role we have played in our own suffering. Sometimes uh, we're in misery, and honestly, sometimes we're part of the problem. Uh, there was this older gentleman when I was first starting out as a pastor. I didn't know how to say no, and I was so eager to please. I was super pastor. And uh, so I didn't know, I was terrified to say no because I didn't want anybody to think I was lazy or I wasn't in it all the way. Uh, I wanted everybody to think that I, uh, I could do it all. Uh, whether that's ego, whether that's fear, whatever that was, it's lots of things actually, all of the above. Um, but I didn't know how to say no, and so I just said yes to all these things, and I ended up running too hard. Uh, I should probably do some episodes on burnout. I had some very bad burnouts. But um, I would often complain about how stressed I was and how difficult it all was. Um, and there was this older gentleman who used to say to me, Man, if anything's too heavy, it's because you picked up something that you weren't supposed to pick up. And he used to make me so mad. I'd be like, he makes it sound like this is my problem. No, it's the system. No, it's the, uh, he made it sound like, you know, and I'd be like, no, this is real. I'm like getting, this is tough. Like I'm, and he'd be like, ah, if it's too heavy, it's because you picked it up. You weren't supposed to pick it up. It's not yours to carry. If it's anything's too heavy, it's because it's not yours to carry. He had all these like old school phrases. And uh, I, would get, I would get so pissed off. I'd be like, it's not that simple. It's not that. Uh, and then years later, I was like, oh, I see what he was saying. Uh, I picked up all of these things and made them my own that I didn't have to pick up. Um, I said yes to too many things and then complained about how many things I was having to carry. And nobody was actually making me. My ego picked it all up because my ego didn't have the courage to say, no, I can't do that. Um, so I now realized there was tremendous wisdom somewhere in there. Um, but all I knew is I was in pain um, 
and it wasn't working and I had lots of people to blame. It's really important uh, in some situations, not others, but in some, we had a role in it. And part of being honest, part of learning to lament is asking, is there anything in here I need to own? Is there anything in here that has roots in something I did and I need to learn from it? I need to take responsibility from it. I need to make amends for it. Uh, that may be in there somewhere. In other situations, that may be an irrelevant, irrelevant question, but in some situations, that may be the question that owns things up. So what you find in these Lamentations poems is the, the woman character owns up to the role that she played. She didn't listen to the warnings. Um, she's in great agony, but part of it is because she wandered. She was unfaithful in this covenant language that is one of the dominant images, because that's what we have. When you're talking about the divine, when you're talking about ultimate reality, all you have is images and metaphors, let's be honest. Metaphors for the mystery. Uh, so here's the interesting thing. Here's what I find so interesting. The narrator is talking about how she brought this on herself. The narrator is talking about her destruction. The narrator is naming just how bad it is. And he talks about the, her filthiness cling to her skirts. Essentially, she was unfaithful. She was unfaithful to the divine. She was unfaithful to her love. She wandered away. Um, and so these images are very, that's what you have. You have images. These poetic images are really, but then, but then the narrator turns chapter two and he says, what can I say for you? With what can I compare you? He's no longer the passive bystander. We talked about this in the last episode. To what can I liken you that I may comfort you? And you know what he calls her then? And this is uh, what verse 13 of chapter two, he says, to what can I liken you that I may comfort you? Virgin daughter Zion. And that's when then he adds that line from the last episode, your wound is as deep as the sea. What does he call her? Virgin daughter Zion. Oh, come on. Uh, do you see what he says, essentially? He says early on, he stands in judgment of her. He says her filthiness clung to her skirts. Everybody saw her nakedness. He basically says, ah, oh, she's a whore. Uh, she's an adulterer. She's been unfaithful. She's been out sleeping around. She hasn't taken care of the widow, the orphan, the stranger among you. She's turned her back on her lover. That's essentially what, of course she's reaping this destruction. But then what does he say? He says, oh, you know how I see you? You know how I'm going to comfort you? Virgin daughter Zion. Now remember filthiness uh, links to this religious idea that was very powerful among this Jewish tribe of uncleanness being ritually unclean. You know what he says when he calls her virgin daughter? He says, I don't see you as unclean anymore. I see you as clean. I don't see you as defiled. I see you as pure. I don't see all that you've done wrong. I see who you now are. You see, this is the question. This is the deep driving human question can we begin again? Or does this thing we've done or this thing that happened to us have to define us? Whatever it is, whether it's something that came your way completely out of nowhere, 
or whether it's something that you had a role in, does it have to define you? Will you wear this badge of shame forever? Or can we begin again? And what the narrator, what the poet does is he has a narrator say to you, uh, no, no, you're no longer, you're no longer an unfaithful adulterer. I, I'm going to call you virgin daughter of Zion. Oh, essentially, this is now part of your story. It's there, so we can't deny it. But you can transcend it and occlude it. You can keep going. This stain, this mark, this blemish, you can be cleansed. You can be made right. You can start again. This doesn't have to define you. Do you and do I, do we have that kind of power to speak a new word to someone? Because essentially what he says to her is he says, uh, all that you've done doesn't have to be the last word about you. This destruction isn't the last word about you. This defilement, this infidelity, this suffering, this wound, this nakedness, this uncleanness, this shame, this humiliation doesn't have to be the last word about you. It's not the last word about you. Is this why these poems have endured? Because that's what we need more than anything. We need a reminder that whatever it is we're going through is not the last word about us. We need the claim, the announcement, the insistence that another word can be spoken about us. Because oftentimes when we're in great pain, that's all we can think about. It's all we can comprehend. We become so closely associated with the pain, the wound, the shame, the humiliation, the mistake, uh, the relationship that blew up, the financial failure, the kid who did this horrible, whatever it is, we become so deeply identified with it. It's all we can think about. We see ourselves as that first and foremost. We're that and then we're a human later. But what the narrator does here when he finally cracks, he breaks, his heart melts, he can't stand it anymore, is he's no longer standing at a distance saying, ah, you brought this on yourself. Oh, you're, man, the filthiness just clings to you because you're loose, you're promiscuous. No, he's no longer, he's now up close and he's leaning in and he's heard her and he's seen her pain and then he says to her, you know that stuff I said? It's almost like he says, you know that stuff I said earlier? No, 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 no. You're a virgin daughter of Zion. That no longer defines you. You can begin again. You can be made clean. You can start afresh. This thing that you've been through doesn't have to be the last word about you. There will be other words about you. And that, my friends, that is good news. All of this in some poems in the middle of the Hebrew scriptures. Fascinating, isn't it? Is there any fresh word you need spoken about you? Is there any way in which you made a mess of things? And in your mind, as you think about yourself, that now defines you. 
And so you need a fresh word. You need to be reminded that you can begin again. This, whatever it is, doesn't define you. It's a part of your story. You can't reject it. You can't deny it, but you can include it. It's now part of your story, but then you can transcend it. You can keep going. And actually think about it. The people who have most inspired you are people who have been through really brutal things and they don't, they don't ignore them. They don't refuse to speak of them, but they speak of them as if that was a word about me. That is something that happened, but then we kept going. They transcended and included, and that's your invitation to take all that pain, shame, humiliation, wound, shock, denial, whatever it was, uh, disorientation, anger, and to swallow it up so that it is a part of your being, but then you keep going. That is the invitation. That is what we each can do. This does not have to define you. Another word can be spoken about you. And that, my friends, is episode five of Learning to Lament. Grace and peace to all of you.